0: like what you hear on this episode, please go ahead and sign up for the Severe MMA Patreon. It supports independent MMA, it supports the guys, and it helps us to bring content that's useful to MMA and to you. Thank you. Here's the podcast. On this episode, we have a plethora of clips from podcasts ranging from the Q&A, The Chasing Pack with Ian O'Neill, a platinum Patreon question with Sean Denny, The Speaker's Corner with myself and Sean, and a special podcast with Sean and Philip O'Connor to discuss the war in Ukraine. So let's start right there. First up, we have some clips from the hard-hitting and emotional podcast with Philip O'Connor and Sean Sheehan talking about the war in Ukraine.
1: Come here to me, Philip. Why did this start? Why did, why did this whole Russia versus Ukraine thing start? Because that's, I suppose, where we must start from. I don't really know, to be honest. I know there's there's a lot of talk, as there always is with these wars, seemingly about oil and about uh, territory and about money, you know, as well as the, the right that they feel like it is theirs from uh, mm. both sides of it and all that. Where For you, where did it start? How did this war start? And why
2: did it reach this crescendo? Well I think the whole thing started with it actually started in 1989 Sean right when the USSR the former Union of Soviet Socialist Republics fell apart in 1989 that was like the end of communism in Europe so we went from having like they had various vassal states like Hungary and Romania and Poland and all these places and gradually that fell apart communism as an idea that was set up you know after 1945 just sort of fell apart the whole thing didn't work and everything became very very fragmented so I think you can sort of look at what's happening today because all of these states that sort of cropped up after that, the Baltic states I think became independent pretty much 1991 or so. Ukraine itself became a state in 1992. Uh, I was actually talking to somebody yesterday about the European soccer championships that took place in Sweden in 1992 and there it wasn't Russia and it wasn't the USSR, it was the Commonwealth of Independent States which existed briefly during this transition period, right? And it all stems back to that, but it's such a huge, broad thing Sean, because what we've seen over the Uh, sort of 30 or 40 years, I think uh, Robert Fisk, the great journalist with The Independent, a brilliant war correspondent has written many great books, one of which is called The Great War for Civilization. So some of these things are to do with oil. Some of these things are to do with money. Some of them are to do with power and some of them are to do with ideas. And I think that what we're seeing now, really, is the conflation of all those things, all those things coming together, right? So you have a situation where Russia feels that, you know, it's been under threat ever since 1980. Before that, we had the Cold War. Everybody had nuclear weapons, and it was the Americans against the USSR, and that was the way the world worked. But they feel kind of, in a way, now that they've been humiliated by the last thirty or forty years. That Russia is no longer a superpower. We hear the Americans refer to it as the world's only superpower. You could say the same thing about Brexit. That that was came about because Britain didn't feel like it was a great nation. You know, this great empire anymore. And what we're seeing now is an attempt to re-establish that on so many different levels. And it does come down to all those things. It comes down to national. Identity, but it also comes down to greed and a hunger for power on the part of Vladimir Putin. And unfortunately, the people of Ukraine have wound up in the firing line. Let's get to the sporting aspect of it. So, because uh, I, I, I was, I've been talking about this for
1: the last week or so and then talking about having you on, and it I really came to four for me the other day because. Um, I, I'm I'm doing the, the Sheehan show now over on uh on Sherdog, and I'm doing like the different, you know, uh cage Warriors have a show next week. I'll be doing a preview for that, I'm doing Bellator and Eagle FC have a big show this week, right? And Habib Nurmagomedov yeah. owns that and there's loads of Russian fighters on it. And Uh, I I think Bloody Elbow wrote an article about about the rushing backing and, you know, we know uh, Ali Abdelaziz is with Habib, he's his manager, and we've seen his ties to Kadarov, we've seen Habib with Putin, and, you know, we've seen McGregor with Putin as well, but I'm specifically talking about uh, Eagle FC here at the moment, and I started off that kind of by saying, look, if you don't want to watch this preview, if you don't want to watch this card, it's up to you, but I kind of... I have respect for the fighters. I have a job to do. I have to go out and talk about this. But I had to kind of start by that. I just, like normally, I I would just go in and I would talk about a character. Like when it's Colby Covington and there's a lot of politics, and it's very different, I know, but there's politics and all this shit. And even Bryce Mitchell last week, I may make one or two comments, but it's very much a talk about the fight. I'll talk about their ability and all of that. But this to me felt a little bit different. And I am one of those people in my coverage, maybe not personally, or if I was talking to you over a pint or over a text or whatever it might be, I might have my opinions there. When I'm talking online or talking on podcasts and stuff, I I do, I am one of those people who tries to keep the politics out of a little bit, unless it's a conversation like this where we're specifically talking about or myself and Harry on Speaker's Corner, whatever it might be. But I felt I couldn't. And do you feel like, is this a little bit different? Like, is this uh, situation a place where... sports and life in general is different because it feels like it like blocking the banks um you know different sports people all over the world like the the um, nikita mazapan in the f1 has been stopped Uh, well i think he was going to be left go anywhere but it feels like they made a statement that he's going to be dropped ireland refused to play russia and soccer and other things like that uh first of all why is that different and why 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 is this happening where we're refusing to play russia and even with my preview there and, and stuff like that like should i be ignoring that should i not be doing that should we be supporting those cards
2: that are coming up no, I think that you know, like, there's a huge context to, to be considered around this, right? So, sport doesn't happen in a vacuum, and it was fascinating there during the Winter Olympics, Shawny, because there's a guy called Thomas Bach who's the president of the International Olympic Committee, right? I think he's a German lawyer from the beginning, but he's one of the most powerful men in sport, and this is all going on. So, like, this this didn't happen overnight. I was actually at um, Lavrov and Blinken, the two foreign secretaries for um, the Russia and the Americans. I was at a meeting that they were at in December, I think it was here in Stockholm. So, this has been going on this diplomacy over by. Back- it's been going on for ages. And Thomas back every day during the Olympics, the IOC has a briefing. And at one of those briefings, a colleague of mine asked him a question about politics in Russia. And he was going, oh, the Olympics would be dead if we ever became political, right? The Olympics is political. It's the biggest political sporting organization out there. So is the World Cup. So is the UFC. So is Eagle FC, right? But their level of politics or the level of influence or involvement they have in politics, that varies over time, right? So now when we see uh, Russian teams being killed Kicked out of the, the World Cup, for instance, they've been told now they can't play Poland. They're going to play the winner of the Czech Republic and Sweden, and whoever wins that, then will go to the, the World Cup. If the Court of Arbitration Sport doesn't discover, uh, doesn't decide that Russia has to go back in there, with the specific case of Eagle FC. I think what you have to look at is the propaganda value in terms of this war, right? So we have to see things through the lens of this war. Now, our good friend Karim Zidane would make the case that there's an enormous propaganda value that is harvested from MMA. And it feels it, it feeds into that idea of violence, of being ready to fight for the motherland and what you believe in, in a way that soccer or gymnastics or figure skating doesn't, you know? So we have to consider it in that. what What is it going to be used for? What are the victories going to be used for? And I'll give you a personal take. Right at the moment the Olympics is over Russia won loads of medals I saw them win several of them but now the Paralympics is going on and Russian and Belarusian athletes were kicked out of the Paralympics and I object strongly to that Right, because the reason being there's two things there's very little money in para sports there's very little attention for it these are people who've worked all their lives they're not millionaires in the way that Usain not saying Bolt might be this is it happens once every four years and God only knows about their politics right um, so I would object strongly to them being kicked out like the day before the Olympics because to me there is no propaganda value in any medal that either of those two nations would there just isn't right R- Vladimir Putin is never going to go on TV and say oh look at how many great medals we won at the Paralympics he will do that with with the Winter Olympics or the Summer Olympics or the soccer team or the judo which he was very involved in he might do it with Eagle FC right he might you know get a, a, a tweet from Khabib or something like that that remains to be seen I do think we have to talk about whether it's suitable for a non-Russian fighter, a European fighter, an Irish or a British and American fighter to go to that part of the world now and to put his name at the top of a card. Now, I have to admit, I, I haven't seen who's on the cards. So I don't know what kind of fighters are there, but maybe mostly Russian, Dagestani, Chechen fighters, I don't know. But should you be lending them your clout? you know that, that's a question that every fighter will have to ask themselves you know it's a short career there might be money to be made there but again it comes to me it comes down to the propaganda value who are you serving and in what way are you jumping into bed with people who have relationships with Khadridov with people who have you know put Putin in his position of power you know and I don't know I'd say Connor may be slightly embarrassed at the moment about that picture of him in his lovely suit with his arm around Putin you know I should have dropped up to the forwards, the Black Forge in last week and maybe asked him about it you know well, I'd say that might be an embarrassment to him now because. Because you know Connor a decent guy. Under all of these things that I've gone wrong from, I think he's a fairly decent person. So I think in that context, and I don't think that there's any given answer. I don't think it's either all Russians out of sport or all Russians in. Right? We've seen some Russians who are very much against the regime, and you know they're out as well. They don't have any choice. They're not allowed to compete at the Olympics or under the Russian flag or to hear their anthem if they win anymore. So I do think it's very much by a case by case basis, and it's very much to do with your own conscience of what you feel is right to be doing. I do think that you're right to cover the fight card, Sean. This. Is is a new promotion it's an important promotion it's going to take viewers away and fighters away from Brave and from One and from the various uh, promotions in the United Arab Emirates which can be questionable in themselves and I think it's absolutely right to cover it with the caveat that you know maybe one doesn't agree with exactly what's going on in the world around that promotion
1: where, where do we draw that line it's not even a line because there doesn't seem to be a line a snippet
0: from the Speaker's Corner podcast where Sean and I discuss the value of fighters promoting themselves over acquiring skills. My final question is kind of on the back of uh, the, the, does the MMA media have a duty to teach the fighters how to be natural? Like if MMA media doesn't have that duty, who in the MMA sphere, or does nobody have the duty to talk to younger fighters and say, look, just be yourself and it will have confidence that it will work out. You will run something. I'm going to go uh, a little bit long on this explanation, I think, but um, something that you say often is there's never going to be another Conor McGregor and you should never try to be another Conor McGregor. You should just be the best that you can be and be very, very comfortable with being the best that you can be. You take Arton, had a fantastic career, never won a world title, never was in the top five in the UFC, but has a bag of fans. Everyone calls him the GOAT. And he had a great career, right? Whether that's great from a financial perspective, but he was certainly adored by the fans that adored him, right? If you're a young fighter, specifically an age-wise young fighter, it is without a shadow of a doubt that you believe that you can be a world champion, otherwise you wouldn't be doing it, So how do we, and I'm calling we as, as sort of the MMA fan base, how do we, rationalise with these fighters that it's okay to be delusional because otherwise you're never gonna be great, but also be natural in yourself?
1: That's a great fucking question. Jesus Christ, that's we could start another podcast talking about that. Um <laughs> and I'll actually kinda of hearken back that is that I don't know if that's the right phrase, but I'm gonna use it anyway. To the last podcast we did, which was and maybe this will be out before, but anyway, I don't think it will. It was about uh, covering MMA and covering it the right way and do things the right way. <sighs> a lot of it's doing it the right way for yourself as well, you know? And making the decision to... Making your decision. Whether it's wrong or right. You know, we don't always make the right decision. You know? I'm just... You, you mentioned Artem Labov there. Uh, and there's a guy, uh, you probably know, Jay Furness, uh, who mm-hmm. yeah, covers MMA course. and yeah, fought. He beat Artem Labov back in 2012. And he never got to the UFC and you know he he fought in some big fights he beat eve landu in his last fight back in 2015 and just looking at his record here and he's beaten some very very good guys he fought Ogle, he beat liam james i i'm i wonder like i wonder would he swap his career for artem's career he probably i I would say he probably would you know and that that's a weird thing that is that is kind of a weird thing to think about it that way that I think he was natural and I think he did the writing and he did loads of interviews and he worked for websites and he did writing and everything and it still didn't work out for him the way it worked out for art. And a lot of it can be looking. You know, I said earlier on, oh, hi, stand in there and send for an uh, Instagram picture with Conor McGregor and suddenly 50,000 fans, you know? That Artem would admit himself, you know, he he's often said Connor got up on the wall he got over and then he reached back up and he pulled us up with him. And that's exactly what fucking happened. And Artem did a great job and the other lads did a great job as well of capitalizing on that. And for guys like Jeff Furness, they don't have that. And maybe they don't have like the, the personality to stand out like, you know, like an Artem or like other people have or, or like someone who's just doing it by themselves, like a Paddy Pimlet to stand out and do it like that, even though they are very good fighters and things. It's, and, like, that's the reality of as well. It's not going to work for everyone. Not everyone is going to be a world champion. Not everyone is going to be loved. Not everyone is going to be uh, the best personality in the world, you know? But you have to try, you know? You uh, To quote Ian Gary. you don't wake up every morning or you don't dream at night of playing for fucking Barnsley. You dream of being the UFC champion. Or, the, you know, maybe you dream of being a better champion. Maybe you dream of being rich and something that motivates you and you you know maybe maybe talking about being rich maybe ta- talking about being a champion talking about being the best will never get anyone anywhere so that's, that's the one thing like no don't do that but yeah it's it's difficult and you know the, the the question you asked there is a question that nobody really has an answer for apart from let it be natural you know and we don't know like who would have said some young Irish lad who talks a pile of fucking shit will be the biggest star in the history of the sport like and you know i we we probably wouldn't be sitting here we definitely wouldn't be sitting here if that if it didn't go that way you know because we were me especially was very lucky to be in the position where I had just started covering the sport a year before he started coming into the psyche and things like that. And it was uh, it was great timing and everything like that. But, you know, for me as well, like timing is very lo- lucky. We wouldn't be, you people wouldn't be listening to this if it wasn't for that very lucky timing. I feel like I'd still be covering the sport. I'd still be talking shite. I'd probably still be doing a severe podcast or whatever it is. I mightn't have the Patreon. I mightn't be working full time for Shardock sure, or whatever it might be. Um, And, you know... Jeff Furness, I think he's still writing or still, he's still uh, teaching and he's, I think he got his black belt there, didn't he, recently and things like that as well. So people still do it and they p- still go on and, and they, they, they you know, they they get through it. But as I said at the very start as well, if you get to the top and you're a very good fighter and you don't have that effort put into marketing yourself and being that guy, you won't be as big a star as you could be. And if you put in loads of effort into marketing yourself and you, you're not as good of a fighter uh, you'll never get anywhere anywhere, but if you do none of it, you will get nowhere. <laughs> so you know you have you have to do something you are ha- it's all, look it's all about taking a chance in life as well whether it's we're talking about fighting or whether we're talking about ending And um, you know p- the whole premise of this and maybe we haven't talked about it enough maybe but we, we will maybe end it on this. The whole premise of this kind of podcast is that and, and maybe it's another podcast we can talk about another day. this is prize fighting At the end of the day you have to be known, you have to be known. You know, I, I I remember I said it once, you have to dance for your dinner and sing for your supper. You know, you have to fight, but you have to be known. You have to be liked or hated. or no, Known is the word. Known is the word. If people know you, if people know you, they will tune in to watch you. You'll earn more money. You'll get more opportunities. And uh, you will fulfill what you dreamed of. And maybe one day you'll be able to play for uh, Liverpool or Man City or, you know, not Man United. But anyway.
0: Kilkenny's finest. Ian O'Neill is up next discussing the news and topics from all the MMA promotions outside of the UFC
1: Anyway, let's move on a little bit from Cage Drivers here. Let's talk about Kayla Harrison um, who has signed a multi year deal with PFL Now I put up a multi year deal and goes why on Twitter and everyone's like money Oh, why'd you think she's getting a million dollars to beat people easily and I'm like yeah, okay, right. Sign a one year deal she can get those millions to beat all those people easily and if she wants, she can sign another one year deal in a year's time. What, what, what is the advantage of signing a multi year deal? Now maybe I actually I haven't watched a real show with her yet, I'm I must definitely watch it because I, I heard it was very, very good. Um maybe it's the fact that Bellator offered her like a three year deal and then matched it. Maybe that's why and that would
3: probably make a little bit more sense. But if I was her, I I, I don't know. I don't know if her a way around make it. A- She's going to make all those pay per view points when they start putting around pay per view, Sean. That's yeah. why she said, <laughs> "Yeah, they
1: gave going pay per view." But uh, oh my god, it's when I heard this news, uh, beyond just beyond frustrating, beyond like you want you want the best to fight the best. And I understand that the money and everything like that, and it's absolutely you know, great for PFL and, and great for Kayla Harrison in a way, but it didn't seem like she wanted to just stay there and take that easy million quid. It felt like she wanted to go to Bellator and fight Cyborg and earn a good bit of money for doing that, or go to the UFC and fight Amanda Nunes or fight Juliana Pena or whoever it might be and earn the money doing it the hard way, doing it the... The uh, I wouldn't say the honest way because it's honest student PFL is on she absolutely deserves it and look I'm delighted she's getting a million quid but it's just disappointing like we we are known in MMA for the best fighting the
3: best and it feels like the best is kind of being held back a little bit here what are your thoughts on that uh, I agree 100% like I mean put her in Bellator have her go down to 145 she's got a bunch of fights there for herself she doesn't have to come in there and she doesn't have to fight Cyborg straight away but I feel, I don't know, I'm just not excited to see her back in the PFL. You know, she, they're not going to get the talent in there to kind of, to kind of like challenge her. And, you know, it might make sense for her financially, perhaps to go in there and, and fight lesser opponents, but you have to wonder what she's going to be feeling like, because you want to challenge yourself as a as a fighter. Okay, look after yourself financially good on her but the challenge is not going to be there and she's a competitor and she wants to be competitive and i don't know it just doesn't make too much sense it to feels me. like she's it, forced but, isn't it it feels like she's yeah for it's against her hand and she
1: wanted to go to places but she's just forced to go back to pfl
3: yeah i just really don't know like i and ali abdelaziz is our handler as well i think so i don't know what information he's given to her i don't know if if an offer is there uh, an offer coming in from someone else does she have the right to kind of break that contract is she tied to the three years I, I'd like to uh, I'd like to hear that interview with uh, um, Ariel as well to kind of hear what she's thinking and
1: I wonder uh, I wonder why Ali Abdelaziz would want uh,
3: Kayla Harrison to stay in PFM mm. Mm, I wonder hmm yeah. mm, mm, mm. make that easy money that yeah. he can get a percentage <laughs> of, perhaps
1: <laughs> mm, I think there's even more to it than that mm,
4: who you,
3: yeah, how what what used p f l be called before you what were they called before? oh, that was the world series of fighting yeah. that ali Abdulaziz used to kind of run oh, and he, owned, did he
1: didn't he own and yeah. then he had to kind of give it up, give it up, wink wink, nudge nudge, yeah, 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 yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. yeah I wonder, yeah. Anyway, it's, in, it's that kind of one where he's like, uh, he's like telling Kayla, like, it's in your best interest, Kayla. <laughs> yeah. When he's squeezing her hard on the elbow <laughs> at her, trying to get her to sign the deal. It's in your best interest. Best interest. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but look at it. Like, like, look, at Cyborg doesn't have long left. Let's be real. She doesn't really have long left. You don't have to go in there and you don't have to throw Kayla Harrison in there with Cyborg straight away. Or you could throw her in there straight away. There's two ways you can do that at Bellator. You can go in there and throw her in there straight away. She either wins and she, she wins and you do the rematch or she loses and you build her back up to that Cyborg rematch. But Cyborg is going to be there for the taking eventually. And I would I, I would be confident in someone like Kayla Harrison coming in and devising a game plan and being stronger than her and getting Cyborg down in the latter stages of her career. And I think it's just going to be a huge missed opportunity now. What are they going to do for the next three years for Kayla Harrison? Where's Amanda Nunes going to be in three years? I mean, it's it's a really head-scratching kind of a, a deal to me, and I, I just can't get my head around it. The one thing that gives me a little bit of
1: hope is Cyborg apparently has only one fight left in her Bellator deal. So maybe Cyborg could find her way over to PFL <laughs> and end up fighting Kayla Harrison. Um, also... Uh, Her name just escapes me now. What is the... What is the name of the lady who went from Bellator to PFL and was fighting there this year? Um, Julia Budd. Julia Budd. That's a tough fight. Yeah. That is a tough fight. I would love... I think Ariel suggests as well, and I agree with him. I would love if they made it a 145-pound tournament. Now, I'm not advocating for cutting more weight or anything, but... If they could space out those fights a little bit more, which they can because there aren't as many people in that division, make it £145. Have Kayla Harrison talking about how she's the best 145 pounder in the world and do it like that. I think it just adds a little bit more to it. Then Cyborg comes in. If she does, it's £145. It'd be absolutely massive. You could see some women coming over to fight... Uh, Kayla Harrison in PFL the only issue with that as well though is people come to the PFL I, I've said it like before a guy like say someone like a Dominic Reyes uh, if I was him I would get out of the OC as quick as I could come to the PFL they have nobody really a light heavyweight. you'd probably win that handy enough about how much you get getting paid if you don't win the million quid that's that's the thing I'd be talking about, and if you're coming over to find Car- Kayla Harris, Hela Harrison, uh, you're probably not willing to million quid. To be fair, unless you're maybe Amanda Nunes, and even then, where's Amanda Nunes now in her career? So, look, it's a very interesting one, and we, we look, we must say as well because we I've kind of bypassed a little bit. Bellator did put in a big bid for her, and PFL did match it. So I'm, I, I don't know. Maybe we can we can talk to someone about it. Maybe there's an article out there about it, but I'm pretty sure that she had no option both to sign for PFL at that stage. Remember Gilbert Melindez at the time had an offer with PF, or with uh, Bellator and the UFC match, and then he was forced to come back and and, and sign with, with the UFC. Um, I'm pretty sure that's how it works, and that's shitty for everyone apart from the PFL, and look, fair play to them. If you're looking at it from the PFL side, absolutely, they're a growing organisation and all, and, and they should want to keep Keller Harrison, but... For an MMA you can't help but be disappointed if you're an MMA and I'm sure Kayla Harrison as well as a competitor. And it seems like she is uh, a diehard competitor. It is, uh, it's very tough for her. But anyway.
0: Now, we have the Prince of Poland himself, Mr. Sean Denny discussing his favourite five fighters from the KSW promotion.
1: A question, and it's our our very own severe junkie Thomas over there has sent us in. He wants his platinum podcast to be Sean Dinney's top 5 KSW pound for pound fighter. So what did I do? I reached out to Sean Dinney and I got him to do it. Sean, how are you today? You're you're saying here now we we, we didn't him before we even started. You're saying no particular order here, but you're giving you're giving the top 5 anyway. And we'll see how it goes.
4: <laughs> Yeah, it can change with the wind disorder, depending on what mood I'm in. <laughs> it's like picking your favourite children. Yeah. You can never do that, never do that. Hopefully none of the, the KSW
1: crowd are listening in anyway. We won't defend to, we, uh, we to anyone too much anyway, so we, we shouldn't be too bad. But, uh, if
4: if, if the air, I'll say, suppression. Suppression, him, him, just <laughs> at the start. What does that mean? Calm down, is it? Right? Yeah.
1: Sorry, sorry. Sorry, okay, okay. <laughs> uh, let's get straight into it, and we will... Uh, we'll start at at the highest division. We'll start with Phil DeFries, uh, who is the heavyweight champion at the moment. Obviously, we know Phil DeFries from his days. Uh, I suppose a lot of people listening to this who maybe don't watch a lot of KSW will know him from his days uh, in in the UFC. Uh, back you know he fought uh Miocic and on ten years ago, nearly at this stage, or even when was he? Yeah, around, around, almost exactly ten years ago, uh, to the day, and he had you know a couple of wins in in the UFC, uh, but kind of fell out and took his time to find kind of find his way in MMA before he 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 made his way to KSW in two thousand and eighteen. And it's been an unreal run in KSW, Shani, hasn't it? Like, he beat uh, Narcoon, he won that Luis Enrique fight, which was a weird fight, but since then, you know, he's beat Narcoon again, and only a couple of weeks ago there, he beat uh, Darko Stosic. So it's been a great run, and, and Phil De freeze makes it into your top five.
4: Yeah, uh, indeed. Like, he's been spotless in KSW. He's gone 7-0. and um, He came in, beat a, a good champion in uh, Miho Andrzejczyk uh, for the belt, and since then, no... Well, Henrique came close to taking it off him, but uh, nobody else has really come that close. Um, he, he had those two fights with Narcoon, which he used the size there uh, to beat him. And then just as recently as a couple of weeks ago, as you say, he sort of walked through uh, Darko Stosic, who, who didn't really stand much of a chance there.
1: Yeah, as, as we know, De Vries obviously has been around for a while. Uh, James Hinden, did, did, by the time this is out, that fight will already have happened. I think fighting for the Cage warrior slightly trends with him, trends with uh, Andrew Fisher up in Sunderland as well. And, you know, we have obviously uh, our uh, our Newcastle slash, Sun- if I call him a Sunderland correspondent, he'll kill me, but Jake Smith talk, <laughs> talks an awful lot about him. Um, I think it is, I haven't watched a good bit of Phil De Vries over the last few years. I think it kind of is that strong wrestling with the kind of his own strength as well. He's, you know, his ability to take a shot. There are a lot of good strikers, a lot of a strong men literally in, in that division in KSW. But he's up there with, with the best of them. And, you know, sometimes you think, okay, heavyweights outside of the UFC or outside of not even Bellator, I don't think, because they don't have the heavyweight division. Sometimes it's easy. But it's not the case in KSW, is it? He's had some tough matchups and he's he's performed very well.
4: Uh, KSW are sort of going out of their way, trying to find uh, suitable, well-matched opponents for him. Um, the trouble is that they are getting good opponents. They're just falling short. Phil DeFries is that good. and like He's a gentle giant outside the cage, but inside the cage, like, uh, like he's, he'd easily, if he was in the UFC, he'd be in, in the rankings for sure, probably even pushing up into the top 10. Like, he, he really is that good. Uh, And a heavyweight, like if you're a strong wrestler and you can use it, uh, the likes of Curtis Blade show that you can get really far in heavyweight uh, with with a good wrestling game. And he can take a shot. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's not afraid to stand and trade if needs be. But he's really grown probably mentally is probably his biggest advantage. Then, like He goes in, shows no fear, trusts his skills, doesn't fear anybody. And he just goes in, gets the job done time after time.
0: Next up. We have some clips from the Q&A with Sean Sheehan. Uh,
1: are you concerned about how long it took to make a decision in the uh, Ingamuru njuku in fight? A simple point deduction shouldn't be that complicated. Um, I Look, I think this was probably... There's, there's probably three or four people lined up to um, collate the cards, uh, hand the cards to Bruce Buffer, Bruce Buffer to tell someone what the score is going to be and then him to go in and read out the cards. And somewhere along that line I would probably say it's either... um (laughs) a production guy or Bruce Buffer himself saying how does this make sense how can it be 29-27 one way and 29-27 the other way when it it makes a lot of sense obviously because if it's uh, 30-27 you take a point away from the guy who won 30-27 it's 29-27 and if the other guy wins 29-28 and you take away the point from the guy who lost, it's 29-27. So it's the same. It's both 29-27s, it's just the different score rounds. So it is a bit confusing, to be fair, until you kind of think about it and think how the scores were given. So uh, am I concerned it took so long? Um, no, not really, because it was weird. The, the, the point deduction in that one, with the way the rounds were scored, three rounds to uh, Njuku, and then another judge, the other two judges had a two rounds to Njuku, it was absolutely an odd scorecard to read out and someone, a some, uh, scorecard we don't see that often so uh, no not too, not too concerned on, on, on that one to be honest uh, next question are you happy with how the RDA and Micana fight was handled could easily have been stopped uh, but Micana showed he's still fighting him in round 5 uh, I'm not that happy with how the doctor handled it to be honest I think Mark Goddard tried to do what was right? He tried to do his best, but at the end of the day, you—if you're in Mark Gardener's position—you have to listen to the doctor. You know, the doctor is the one who you know knows about the the health of the person in, in charge. If the doctor is not telling you to stop it, you know you can still—it's not that you can't stop it—but he, he couldn't stop it in that position. He did say to Mike Anna, "Look, the doctor—he he didn't say this, but he said in in." you know, on certain terms, kind of, look, the doctor said, you can go on, I'm giving you 30 seconds, if you prove to me you can keep going, I'll let you go, and if you can't, I'm going to stop it on my volition. so, I think at the time that sounded very odd, I'll give you 30 seconds, but thinking about it again, it makes sense, because of what the doctor said, so, um, yeah I uh, it's understandable I think Goddard handled it well I think the doctor probably should have stepped in looked at the eye and said look he can't go on and I never buy into this oh he did well in the fifth round so he was right not to stop at monarchy that's the same with like stoppages when someone walks around and they're fine after the stoppage if it's the right time to stop it it's the right time to stop it it doesn't matter how they look after it you know Um, so yeah I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't be the the biggest uh, advocate for that sort of thing so uh, at what point does the corner slash ref call it off? Would or should a title fight or a fight with major jeopardy have the ref or corner more reluctant to stop it? Um, look, what time is the rule? Sh- when should people call it off? I think at the right time. It's it's difficult for the referee at times because the rule is when you're intelli- intelligently defending yourself. Like, was Mikano intelligently defending himself through all of that fight? I would argue he probably was for... For all of it, you know, for all of it. The referee's job is to look, can he physically go on? Um, or is it not even can he physically go on? Because, uh, you know, anyone can go on. But is he physically in an, in a, um, a place to, you know, go on and defend himself well? And that further damage wouldn't... Uh, you know, further damage in the fight wouldn't add further permanent damage to him as a uh, as a human being. So the doctor, I think, can go over and above the referee in that, and he didn't do that. And I think with the corners, the corner is just about knowing your fighter and protecting your fighter, which is over and above that again, maybe. Look, I think the, the difficult thing about the corners in MMA are because uh guys are getting you know 25 to show on 25 to win by throwing in the the towel you're taking away half a guy's paycheck on that night and you know that's a difficult thing to do to someone and i know look if it was a friend of mine in there and um and they were getting badly badly hurt i would like to think that i would throw in the towel and protect them for the next day so they can go out and get their 50 grand the next day rather than 20 you know because you might get 25 grand tonight But there might be no 25 grand and 25 grand the next night if you can't go on after taking such a beating. So you have to think long-term, but it's not easy. Like, I I have great sympathy for him. I'm a huge advocate for uh, corners throwing in the towel more. I think they should. I think fighters have to respect their corners a little bit more. I think corners have to be... um, have to be very much brave to do that and I think they should be and I think if you're working in the corner I think you should have that in you to, to throw in that towel uh, but it's not easy it's it's one of those things look it, it's, it's easy to talk from the sidelines like anyone listening to this or like me or like you know even the fighters themselves you know it's easy for the fighters to say I wouldn't you know don't throw in the towel but when you're there uh, to actually throw in the towel or to not throw in the towel, it's it's a tough decision to make. So I have great sympathy for them, but I would like to see it done more, um, to be honest, yeah. Uh, would you like to see more catch fights? Could be some fun fights around 140, 165, 175. Absolutely. I, I think a lot of these fights um, that haven't that much jeopardy on them to, to steal your phrase and grounds phrase that you used earlier, uh, should be made. And especially the short-notice fights. Um, like... When you, especially when it's a guy say like uh, Rafael Dos Años, who okay has fired up at 170 but it's proven he can make 155 Maikana used to be a 145 we know he can make 155 uh, as well those guys if they come out the next time does it really matter that this fight was at 160 because we know if they have 6 weeks or 8 weeks of a camp next time they're making 155 anyway it's not as if and, and you know There's not going to be It's not a title fight And there's probably not going to be a title fight next for either of them What difference does it actually make? Fair enough Like if it's someone coming into the UFC And they want to You know Set out their stall at 155 You need to make the weight a few times Prove you can make it And all of that Absolutely I have no problem with that whatsoever But when it's two established guys like this um, are And on short notice I, I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with that And I think there should be more uh, More catch rates I understand you know, if it's uh everyone has a full camp and they're both players in the division, like if this fight happened in look, they decided okay the Fizzle fight's not happening, my canoe and RDA are gonna fight in January or in June. Then absolutely it should be one fifty five, no doubt about it. But on on four days notice, whatever it would be, I I love the fact that uh they made a catch with it and I think that should be done more often. Yeah. Uh, next one for Dalton. Uh, is it me or is there a lot of fighters at the moment who've lost two championship fights recently? Masvidal, Colby, Max, Cody at 135, Paria lost two shots of lightweight. Uh, is it because the UFC seems to make rematches a lot quicker? Then they have historically. Uh, is this good or bad for divisions? Absolutely, you're 100% correct there, and this is the point we made at the time when all of these started to be made. That you're going to reach a stage where everyone's fought for the title, and then you have nothing left for those guys, and then you're down in, in, in options for uh, for the champion, and who's going to be next? Because, like, let's say you didn't give Max a rematch immediately, and you gave it to you know someone else whoever it might be Max builds himself up over three or four ways, which he's done in a way but you know he's, he's gone in Max is a bad example but you know what I mean he, he, for the third fight Max is a better example maybe um, you build him up and then it makes more sense down the line le, le, you know Masvidal is a bad example as well because Masvidal should never have gotten the second shot whatsoever but I think um, Colby is a better example Colby shouldn't have got that so quickly What did he have one fight between the two Isman fights too quickly so I think it is bad for the divisions I think it's bad matchmaking Next one. Is Terence McKinney a future champion? A little disappointed, uh, but the man has skills. Yeah, he's a very, very good fighter. Look, it's tough to know with McKinney uh, about his full well-rounded game. He is, Paul Felder said, he's a good wrestler and he comes out and he hits hard as well, but you have to be more than a guy who just has good skills and comes out fast and attacks hard. Like, if that's all well and good, if you get those finishes all the time. But what if you don't? You need to have a bit of cardio. You need to be able to go three rounds. You need to be able to ta- be tactically aware. Now, this was on short notice. So I'm not saying that after this fight specifically, because of this fight specifically, I'm saying in the future, he's going to have to show those things. If we think he can be a champion. Thus far in the UFC, he said three one round fights, if I'm not mistaken, one, two and lost one. Uh, what the one being on short notice. So we will, uh, we will see on that one. Uh, is McKinney versus Dober an early entry for round and comeback of the year? Definitely an entry for round of the year without a shadow of it. That was a classic one-round fight. McKinney coming out, landing, missing the knee first, and then landing the left hook, right hook combination that I love. The John Lineker sort of one. Then landing the second knee, hurting him, and obviously getting a little bit tired in. But I think the knee by... Uh, Dober that he landed inside was a shot that's been underestimated by a lot of people beautiful shot and a beautiful comeback so yeah right up there for me as uh, so, uh, it'll be there towards the end of the year I'll forget it because I always do forget it but if anyone's keeping a list that should be definitely on it
0: Finally here is a snippet from a conversation between two MMA media legends Steffi Haynes and Sean Sheehan reminiscing about times gone by in MMA media Enjoy
1: Sherlock and the UG are kind of two of them, probably the biggest growing websites in in MMA yeah. at the moment, which is is weird because anyone, like back when, say we started uh, watching MMA or listening to MMA, those were like the two places you would go. Like I was, <laughs> a, a, I know I'm a Sherlock guy now, but I was a UG guy back in the day. Like yeah. I was I was a, an 11 noob or whatever it is called me back in the day on my second <laughs> UG account. I remember and like the UG was the place at the time. Can you just t- explain to people, what it was like there like Dana White used to go in the message board in the UG and Tito Ortiz and like Ian McCall I don't know if he's still there or not but he he used to run that place and there was fighters and promoters and everyone they were just there all the time and it was really they were really close to the fans and the people even the media at the time I suppose um it was it was also very close wasn't it
5: it really was and in the early days when the UG first came out like the UG First came out in 1999. Now, I wasn't there. Then I didn't join the UG until 2003. And when the UG was first out... I mean, the way people would get pride, uh, the pride fights and stuff like that. I mean, I can remember swapping a VHS with someone so that I could see fights that weren't available to me and stuff like that. I mean, it's just crazy. But one of the things they were famous for is that. Everybody milled together. Dana White did go in there from time to time, but who you could see in there regularly were fighters. Dan Henderson and Josh Barnett. Josh Barnett was in there all the time. Kenny Florey and uh, Frank Mir has been in there. I mean, lots of fighters were in there constantly. You also had um, uh, management. Um I don't know if uh, people these days know who Kent Pavia is, but Kent Pavia would go in there and post constantly, and then you had your sector of trolls. You know, the the trolls were in there, and the trolls were doing funny, funny work there for a long time. I mean, the the um, the Helio Diaries. Mm -hmm. The Helio Gracie Diaries was one of the funniest things I've ever read to this day. And uh, all the work of a troll and really funny stuff. But uh, people were close-knit, whether it be... to put a united front up Because the sport was small And niche And everybody felt defensive and uh, It was us against the, the world And this and that Especially like the wrestling community There for a while Nobody wanted to admit that MMA was a direct branch off Of pro wrestling And, and, and like a hybrid mix Of pro wrestling and boxing For a long time uh, the, the MMA community Was like staunchly against Everything pro-wrestling. When Brock Lesnar came over, everybody was like, oh, we hate Brock, you know, go Frank (laughs) beer, Blah, blah, blah. You know, it was like that for a long time. And then as social media boomed, had experienced this gigantic boom, you know, right around 2009, 2010, Twitter really experienced something amazing. And we got Instagram and we got this and that Snapchat and blah, blah, blah. Uh, I feel like the, the whole space grew, expanded and became what basically all the other fan spaces are in the stick and ball sports I mean it's it's pretty gigantic it's just as wonderful at times and just as toxic as to, at times but I, I feel we've caught up with everybody else and we're no longer that tiny niche spot.
1: Yeah, it's weird because like I, I remember kind of when I started off on Twitter and first things, people would know me from the UG and follow you along. It's weird, dude. It's, but okay. but the, the UG was such, I wish I wish I had a better memory to remember everything but there's one that always sticks out to me. There was like there was this fa- fake black belt and uh, there was this guy, you probably know him now but I can't remember his name on the UG, he used to, like go after these fake black belts and he'd out them and uh, <laughs> this black belt said that he was a black belt under Valid Ishmael and the guy who like went to Walid or got a message to Walid and uh, he went insane I remember he did an interview and someone asked him and he's like this guy is not the fucking black belt <laughs> uh, there was like some guy made this video of like uh, Walid's face and some guy like jumping into the sea and swimming he's like Walid is on his way from Brazil to go, go after this black belt saying he's Walid Ishmael black belt there was just some great great stuff and there was some good stuff done there as well like Pete People who are like taking the piss out of people are, you know, acting like they were black belts when they shouldn't be actually got like outed. And, you know, you, I remember you were talking about Dojo Storms the last day on Twitter. Is there any kind of stories like that or that you remember that stick out?
5: Well, there was a guy, there's a thread. I believe it still exists, even with the multiple moves across servers and the, the overhauls of the underground, because the underground underwent another overhaul about a year and a half ago. Um, and before that, it was about six years. And before that, you know, about every five or six years, they go through this massive overhaul of the site and the server and everything else. And they got to move everything. And it's just a pain in the ass because they have their own developers and they don't want to use pre-made software. And it's just crazy. But th- this guy named Derek Tomchek was in there and and he's since passed away. But he was he went to this place? Um, he was at a party or something, and this guy was bragging that he was a UFC fighter and that he owned his own dojo. He was a black belt under, I believe, he was saying under Henzel Gracie because this guy lived on the East Coast and in the general area that the the braggart was, you know, extolling his virtues. And so he decided, okay, I'm going to bust this guy out. So he asked him, okay, where's your dojo? I, I want to come and train with you. And, and right away, the guy rattled off his his name and address. And so he goes out there and it's clear the guy doesn't know what he was what he's doing. He has his garage converted. So when when Tom Check shows up, it's actually like a, a garage dojo. So right away, he knows. And basically, he had his girlfriend come along. And I believe there was video of it. And they first sit down and talk, and it's clear the guy, guy noticed nothing, nothing, nothing. And then another person shows up, and it's clear that this guy has set it up like he he's he's coming along to inquire about getting into the dojo, and I've heard all about you and blah blah blah, and it just looks so set up and they videoed it, and the story got out, and it's one of the funniest threads because they there's a q and a going on inside the thread as well that's meant to be hilarious. And it's just really funny, and the thread is legendary, and it's about I don't know, five hundred pages long, maybe more, yeah. thousands of replies and views. <laughs> I mean, there was there's lots of threads like that, some with videos, some you know just word of mouth, but just lots of neat legendary stuff.
1: I remember there was one with Eddie Bravo too, wasn't there? Or um, I um, I don't know how, how this came into my mind, but did he like? Was he, did he meet someone in the middle of a park to like do a jujitsu match or something? I don't know. Maybe I just completely let <laughs> that up. But there was, there was something. I don't know. Maybe someone can remind us if they were around that time. Thank
0: you very much for listening to the Severe MMA Roundup. If you liked what you heard today, please go ahead and sign up to the Severe MMA Patreon to help the guys continue to make content that's good for MMA and good for you. That's severemma.com forward slash pints. SeveroMA.com forward slash pints. Have a great one. Thanks very much.